Hello. Hi, everyone. Welcome. You are listening to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. We are broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus on the unceded ancestral and traditional Muslim territory in Vancouver. Also, we are broadcasting live. <laughs> I got so used to saying that we're just broadcasting because we pre-recorded everything for COVID for such a long time. But now we're back in the studio and it feels amazing. And I'm so glad you're here to listen to us. So let's just get on with the show, shall we? We have two shout outs and then we have a bunch of interviews, three to be exact. And after the interview, we're going to have a quick review by Jade and that's going to be the end of our show. So let's start with our first shout out, which is for the Fringe Festival. It's starting tomorrow and it's going to be on until September 19th. It's going to be happening on Granville Island exclusively. So you can basically go to Granville Island and make a day of Fringe Festival. See all of the shows. Um, they have amazing shows. If you don't know what the Fringe Festival is, it's basically a theater festival. It's theater for everyone. <laughs> and all of their shows are selected uh, randomly. It's from a draw. So the artists that you see are, <laughs> they, they put their names in there and they were chosen to be on the festival. And all of them are always amazing. And we also have an interview next week on September 15th with uh, three people. So Chantal, Angelica and um, Sarvin, they did Wings Over Water. You can catch that starting September 10th. And we posted that on our Instagram. <laughs> and I actually will be going live on our Instagram soon, too. So if you want to see some behind the scenes, check us out there. We're Arts Report CITR. And our second shout out actually will come from Dion. So uh, um, without further ado, I'll play you the shout out. And yeah, we'll be back right afterwards. Hey, 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 it's Dion here. Hope you guys are all having a good day or night. Today, I actually have a book shout out for all of you literates out there. It is called A Dream of a Woman by the author Casey Plett. And it is a story collection featuring transgender women and their grapplings with their identity in North America. Here's a brief description from the Arsenal Pope Press, which is the publisher for A Dream of a Woman. An ethereal meditation on partnership, sex, addiction, romance, groundedness, and love, the stories in A Dream of a Woman buzz with quiet intensity and the intimate complexities of being human. Casey Plett is an award-winning author, and I've actually discovered her work uh, because she won the Amazon First Novels Award in 2018 for her book Little Fish, which also won a bunch of other awards. So, you know, if you're in the mood to support trans authors and also if you're, you know, not committed enough to read an entire novel, A Dream of a Woman is a perfect book for you. You can pre-order your copy now with the Arsenal Pulp Press at arsenalpulp.com. That's it from me for now. I'll catch y'all later. And we're back. So... Yeah, check out the Fringe Festival, check out Dreams of a Woman, 
And now we're actually going to go into an interview that I did with Diane Curry-Sam. We talked about a musical that she created that is in development right now. The musical is called Olivia O. And they're going to have a uh, they're having a Kickstarter campaign so that they can, you know, uh, get some money to have workshops and then hopefully put the work on stage. We had a lovely interview. So I'll just leave you with that. After the interview, we're going to have a quick ad and PSA break and I'm going to be back right afterwards. Enjoy. Welcome. Hello, everyone. I'm with Diane Carey-Sam, who is the creator of Olivia O and the co-writer of the book and lyrics of the musical. And welcome. Thank you so much for joining me today, Diane. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Of course. So could you start off by telling us what Olivia O is about, what this musical entails? It's a musical about a girl who is separated from her mom at the U.S.-Mexican border. She's 14 Mm -hmm. years old, and her aunt is in the U.S. looking for her. And it's about the, gosh, the theme, I guess, is from isolation and separation to togetherness and family. But Mm -hmm. the story is about, um, it's a play on Oliver Twist in a way. It's about a child lost in the system. It's about her aunt trying to find her, the frustrations that she has, and how she's sort of navigates it and finds her voice in the in the mm-hmm. meantime um there's a love story so <laughs> there's a the aunt in the meanwhile falls in, falls in love with this uh, an activist in her community and mm-hmm. together they sort of uh, try to reconstruct a, a sense of belonging and a sense of family from this tragedy that has kind of befallen them so that's that's it in a nutshell. And how did this story come about? Um, because you co-wrote it with Andrew Cianes de, de la O, right? I hope I pronounced that right. Oh, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, close. Right. Yeah, and so <laughs> yeah. how did this kind of happen with the two of you? Did you kind of come up with the idea together or was it? Yeah. Well, I I was the spark. So I kind of sparked the whole thing. And, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I'm... I got this idea, I was just infuriated by child separations at the U.S.-Mexican border, you know, Mm -hmm. sitting at home watching the news reports about it and and just feeling heart sick um, and and enraged, really. And I just sat down and said, well, it reminded me of Oliver Twist in the 1700s. And my feeling was, are you kidding me that they haven't figured this out yet, that they're still doing this? There's still children being separated from their parents and in, you know, these sort of types of dangerous and, and, and abusive situations. Um, so it was, it was that feeling of, I can't believe this is happening in this day and age. And I thought of the Oliver Twist musical and I thought, I, you know, this is, this is something I could write. So I just took my laptop to the library and wrote it out. Um, but it was in such a, it was in a, a rough, it was, you know, good as far as I can <laughs> tell, right? I mean, I, I had some good feedback that there is some potential to the story and that it was well done, um, but it was still in the early stages, which is when I reached out to Andrew. And, mm-hmm. a- and Andrew is um, from El Paso, Texas, where the play is set. Um, he's a Mexican-American. He's, he's got his kind of, um, you know, his feet firmly on the ground in that, in that culture. He's, you know, grew up in the place where the, the whole play is set. Yeah. And I needed that in the play. Otherwise, it just wasn't going to be authentic and wasn't going to, it, it was only partly complete, in my opinion. So mm-hmm. I reached out to him and, and we developed a, a, a working relationship. And 
has, um, you know, we've been working on it together ever since. And, and along with Gil Yaron, who is from Vancouver area, North Van, no, sorry, West Van. <laughs> and um, he is a, a very talented uh, composer who is working on the, on the music. So, you know, musical theater is one of the most collaborative forms of art out yeah. there. You know, you can get an idea and you can get a concept and put it together, but you can't do it, but you can't do it as a single person. You have to have a team. And, and between Andrew Gill and I, um, we've we've created a very collaborative working team and it's been exciting. Mm -hmm. That sounds amazing. And did you have a reason why you made this story a musical instead of uh you know just a play <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. well I first of all I I, I love musicals um <laughs> I, I have a 17 year old son who's been doing musical theater since he was young like you know seven or eight yeah. probably and he actually did Oliver that mu oh. the musical Oliver yeah in when he was really young and I don't know maybe eight or nine or something maybe even mm. less, I can't remember but he was and he so he did Oliver Twist or Oliver the, the musical mm -hmm. and you know I've been he's been doing shows ever since then and I love that yeah it was never in my mind it was never anything else other than a musical mm -hmm. it just really felt like a to me a musical is one I personally love them but I also love the the explosion of emotion that happens in a song right that the characters are just so yeah. caught up in something and I think for the audience to really feel that musically um, is, is a powerful experience so yeah and so besides writing um, you I've also read that you've had experience in uh, counseling and educating <laughs> you think your experience in counseling and educating impacted your creation of Olivia O at all oh absolutely absolutely like I am um, my specialty and what I studied when I did my counseling degree was in the narr narrative psychology and mm -hmm. the structure of the narrative and the stories that people people tell each other. So the study of, of to me, character characterization of people, their inner inner psychology, their stories. I'm always have always been fascinated by that. But it's like to me, I am a storyteller, and what is driving this play is telling a good story what are people doing? Why are they doing it? What is driving them? What is frustrating them? What do, what do they have to overcome, right? Like at the end of the day, the story has to be about, yes, there's all these things going on, right? Political and, and community-based, and there's all these things happening in the play. There's some big numbers, and there's some, you know, big excitement going on, and the music and everything, but it's driven by the characterization of these people, Mm -hmm. What is it that they need to overcome? What's, what do they need to achieve in life? What are their relationships like? So, you know, as a counselor, I really dealt with people on a, on a deep level, right? Like mm -hmm. what was, um, what stories were they telling themselves? What character were they playing in their own stories? And how could they change that for the better? So um, hopefully my understanding of people that came out of that work has, has really driven the, the story that we're in this musical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I personally, I recently graduated with a psychology degree and mm -hmm. from, you can uh, assume me like talking to you, doing the radio. I love theater and my parents are always like, well, it's going to give you such a insight to like character studies and mm -hmm. basically going to open a whole new world for theater because psychology is the study of the mind and the it really is now we're getting into it I love it right like it really is because when you're writing a character like 
we have one character who I always call her a shapeshifter, right? Mm -hmm. We don't know. Is she, is she for us or against us? Is she for Olivia or is she against Olivia? And what, how, like it's, it's never clear. And there's certain unease that gets created in the audience because of this character, right? And is she a hero or a villain? And I think in real life, right? <laughs> I can remember as a counselor, explaining that concept to people like, hey, this person that's in your life that claims to be helping you and are they really helping you? Mm -hmm. Like that's mm -hmm. psychology 101, right? Like, are they a shapeshifter? Like, and, and people, well, some, yeah, but they did this nice thing for me and they're kind of helping me. Yeah, but they're sort of undermining you at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> like, so those kind of watching that play out in a theatrical way, I think is very, um, it's appealing to people. Hopefully it's therapeutic and learning <laughs> experience for people, but it really helps you to name those kind of things. It's what I yeah. like about storytelling and characterization in a fictional way. You can still see real life playing out in front of your eyes. Yeah, I think so too. Definitely. And so Olivia O is not, um, how do we put this, is be not being show right now because it is still in production and you're having a kickstarter for um the music. yes yes so it's in um we it's not quite in production yet so we are looking for a producer i just want to be clear about that it's in okay, development. Yeah. the word i was yes. looking for was development <laughs> yes yes it is in it's in development so what that means is that um we are looking for producers we're funding some we're fundraising for a mm -hmm. workshop where we're going to hire actors and musicians and take the script and uh, you know not there's no costumes we're not putting it on on a big mm -hmm. live show or anything but run it through with a group of professionals just to 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 make sure it's ready to go so that yeah it's a process and we're going through it so that is um if you go to oliviaomusical.com you can you know sign up for our newsletter but that's you know get some information about our kickstarter campaign because it's going to be happening um shortly like within mm -hmm. a few weeks of when this uh, broadcast so yes okay that was gonna be my next question <laughs> after the the workshopping is done and you're ready to put it into production and stage it um do you think you would want to go with the cast that was used in a workshop or maybe have a different cast do you have any ideas about that or are you like well that's kind of far in the process and I don't want to think about that right <laughs> well actually I it's not really up to me like I'm the playwright right mm -hmm. so at that point by that time we will have you know the person who is directing and producing the workshop mm -hmm. with us will have a lot of impact and input into the cast and it will sort of depend on the producer that that's interested in the show so yeah. um on the actor availability uh, the location um yeah we're too early to even really think about that and and mm -hmm. it's kind of like you yeah like having a baby and handing it over to other people to raise right? <laughs> like, as a playwright I'm involved in of course the development and everything and you know until but at some point I'm not a producer or director or mm -hmm. casting person right so I'll have input but I don't know all those answers. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, hopefully it'll turn out really well and you'll be happy with uh, your baby. <laughs> oh, I know I will. I mean, the people that have, have 
have joined our team so far, just as our, like, Talitha Sanga, she's our communications director. Um, we have someone who's helping us doing some of the marketing, uh, mm -hmm. Juliana, and of course, Gil and Andrew, and we have a, a dramaturg. I mean, we're just a list of people who've stepped mm -hmm. up, and they've all been very talented, and they, they know the business of musical theater, so. Yeah. Also, I wanted to ask, going back to uh, casting for the workshop, uh, is the casting going to be like an open call? Can Vancouver artists uh, audition for it? Or um, do you have any information about that? I don't have a lot because, again, it won't be me doing it, mm -hmm. um, but it will be there will be some open casting calls. Yeah. I don't know if every single character, but definitely there'll be mm -hmm. opportunities coming. That's that's part of it. Right. There'll be there'll be opportunities for you know, people to apply mm -hmm. for some of the roles, um, depending on the budget. <laughs> we <Yeah. don't> know <laughs> the, you know, we won't know the, the how many roles we may have to do, just do a few scenes, like not do every mm -hmm. single scene in the show. So that's going to hence the fundraiser, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, because I think like I really enjoy providing opportunities to people. Mm -hmm. And the more we can, the better off we're, we're going to be as a team. And I think the more opportunities for this show, right? And that's mm -hmm. going to, you know, it's hate to be, you know, I'm such a dreamer. It's hard to be practical sometimes for me, but the, the money, right? Like it's, what's the budget, right? Like uh, I'd love yeah. to have a full, full orchestra and hire a bunch of musicians and have everything, yeah. you know, have backup actors and everything. But I don't, uh, at this point, there will be definitely opportunities. I just don't know how many. Mm -hmm. Okay. And for yeah. the Kickstarter, do you guys have a goal right now of how much you want to reach or are you? Well, our, the way I understand from how Kickstarter works is that there's stages that you go through in Kickstarter campaigns. So our first mm -hmm. stage will be to raise $10,000 US. Okay. Um, and that will help us put on our workshop, uh, likely local. Mm -hmm. um, now, when I say local Vancouver, Andrew, who's our co-playwright, is in Boston. So mm -hmm. maybe there might be some actors from Boston coming as well, mm -hmm. but I don't know yet. But that would be our first our first financial goal would be to raise the money for the initial workshop. Um, and then we will probably have a stretch goal after that. Okay, sounds good. And would you like to remind everyone where they can find more information about Olivia O and also donate to the to the Kickstarter and help you guys out with uh, <laughs> what you want to do with Olivia O? Absolutely. I would go to our website, oliviaomusical.com. And on that site, you can um, enter your email address and join our newsletter. But there's also links to our Instagram page, our Facebook page, Twitter. Um, we're quite active on Instagram, actually, because we do a lot of uh, live interviews. Okay. And yeah, so there's some really cool and interesting content there. Um, but yeah, oliviaomusical.com. Wonderful. And is there anything that you would like to mention before we go? I don't know. I guess it's just that I would love the support of the, mm -hmm. of, of, you know, the Canadian arts community and, and for people to get excited. It's been a, it's been a crap year, to be honest, yeah. like with all everything going on. And, and it's exciting to me to see new artwork coming forward and, and new voices. And yeah, just jump in, <laughs> jump in and enjoy the ride, right? Exactly. I think it's great that you guys are creating something new. And as you said, it's been a really, really bad year. And art has been a great way to escape for a lot of people. And I think it's going to be a great way to recover too. So that's how I feel. So I now all of a sudden my passion kicked in. That's how I feel, right? Like I was really passionate about this topic and very mm -hmm. 
frustrated, like, what can I do? I can't save the world, right? But mm-hmm. I can tell a story. Yes. And I think that if I can get that to people who are, want to be involved, who want to follow along, who want to, you know, donate or at least be part of it in some way. And, it's, you know, rah, rah, support us on the sidelines because there's, there's so much negativity going on. If you could yeah. tell a good you can tell a story in a way that's going to entertain people and move them and make them laugh, make them cry, make them feel something. That's how we're going to heal. Yeah, exactly. And it's such a great way to, even though escaping your reality isn't the best way to deal with the real world problems and your maybe personal problems, but I think theater does such a good way to let people escape for a healthy amount of time. (laughs) You get, as you said, you get immersed in the story and yeah I just think it's it's a great way and thank you so much for creating more of it thank you thank you very much for having me Red Cap Records is an amazing artist-owned and operated record store. Shop from their diverse online music collection and get free shipping within Vancouver and the Lower Mainland with the purchase of two or more LPs. If you would like to further support them through the evolving COVID-19 crisis, you can do so by buying a gift card to use at a later date. Visit www.redcat.ca for more information. Looking to get a reliable and affordable used bike? Need a repair or service to your current ride? Come to the Bike Kitchen, UBC's full-service community bike shop, located in room 36 of the UBC Life Building. Our hours are Monday to Friday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. If you buy a bike from us, bring it back when you're done using it and we'll give you half of your money back as long as you took care of it. If it needs repairs, we'll split the cost with you. Yep, you heard us right. We'll give you crisp dollar bills for half the original price of any used bike that you buy from us, minus the cost of repairs. For more information about our buyback policy and to stay up to date on any COVID-19 inspired changes, find us online at thebikekitchen.com. Well, hello there. Welcome back. This is Sarah Unjo on the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. I actually have one of our correspondents with me. Eva's in the studio. Hello. Hi. It's our first time here, which is very exciting. I'm stoked. <laughs> yeah. It's beautiful. And I have someone with me in the studio, which is quite rare, honestly. <laughs> I was just sitting on Instagram live by myself, and then Eva's like, hey. I'm going to bomb your show. <laughs> It's not like you're not in it ever. No, no. You've never interviewed anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, um, so we played (laughs) a pre-recorded interview. We're going to play another one. Uh, But this time the interview is actually from Dion. So um, Dion, (laughs) so fun fact, this interview was supposed to air like last week. Uh, but then we didn't have a show last week, <laughs> so we did not do that. Um, so we're sorry if you missed us last week, uh, but we have it this week. And so we hope you enjoy it. And 
yeah, I don't I don't know what else to say. Uh, after Dion's interview, we're going to be going into another Adam PSA, but we're going to be back afterwards. Guess what? With another interview. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Enjoy. Again, I just want to say thanks for, you know, lending me your time to talk with CITR. We really appreciate the opportunity. Um, for listeners who are not aware of what the White Saviors podcast is, could you just give us a brief synopsis? Yeah, um, the White Saviors is a podcast that tells the story of We Charity from the beginning to where it's at now. It's also a story about what happens when you blend charity with the business motive with corporations. It's also a story about um, the dynamics of white saviorism uh, themselves, about mm -hmm. this story that we were told in the 90s when Craig Kilberger was sort of um, kind of like Greta Thunberg, this 12-year-old um, from the suburbs who was going to save the world, or at least save the, the, the uh, poor children of the world from labor and slavery. And what happened over 20 years? What happened so that this really noble mission ultimately became one where We Charity was partnered with companies that use child labor on an industrial scale and how they were able to forge um, political alliances at the highest levels of government and corporate alliances with you know, Dow Chemical, Microsoft, how they were able to get access to kids in 17,000 schools, public schools, private schools, and the larger mentality of celebrity-fueled charity of kids from privileged North American backgrounds traveling to so-called third world countries on vacations, really, but vacations that are sold as volunteer um, charity work and that have a lot to do with college admission essays and things like that. Uh, so really, this series looks at everything um, under the under that large umbrella, but it, but really through this gripping story of this Canadian organization that really um, became a global force and how it all came crashing down. Yeah, for sure. Like I especially wanted to talk to you because I myself was actually super involved with the Meet a Week Club in my local school, and I knew a friend who actually went on one of these trips and was actually, he had a really good experience. He went to Kenya to build a school with Meet a Week. And um, he felt really like inspired by the trip. But obviously after, um, you know, the scandal broke out in early 2020, like we all had to kind of reflect on what it means to volunteer, but in a, in a so-called third world country, like the idea of volunteerism. And I was just wondering, do you think there's a, good way to do it where young like people from North America can still like immerse themselves in the other experiences but without this tinge of white saviorism added to it? Well to be really clear about it um, I think that and, and part of the noise the air show is taking place in the background here so we're so there's some low flying uh, military planes in Toronto right now. Um, I think that travel is wonderful for young people. And if you're trying to understand the world that you live in, and uh, especially if you're a person with a social conscience, conscience or, or trying to figure out how you can be a part of positive change, travel yeah. can be a wonderful part of that. And I think that 
you know, there are ways to meaningfully contribute. I don't necessarily know that manual labor from, you know, North American teenagers is what is needed. Um, But I still think that, you know, a lot of people who do become positive contributors, not just to the world, but specifically to, to, you know, certain countries or, you know, that starts with going and seeing firsthand. I think that's great. Um, And and, and our our series isn't really an attempt to say that, um, you know, people who took part in that were doing anything wrong per se. Um, But what we do take a critical look at, and mostly just by talking to people who went on these trips, um, is that there was a great deal of confusion. And I would suggest purposefully, people thought that they were giving to a charity. They were actually paying a private company. me to we is a private company. The, the we organization will be the first to tell you that. However, when you talk to people who went on these trips, they were confused about that. And some of them felt like they were um, on a charitable mission of some kind. These trips, you say your friend had a, a positive time and it was inspirational. I have no doubt about that. They were designed to be that way. What mm-hmm. we hear in, in the White Saviors talking to former employees of the we organization is that there were like children in Kenya who would come and greet the volunteerists and give them pictures and dance and sing for them. And, and they would do that many times a week. And every time they did that, it was a day that they were pulled out of school to go and provide this inspirational experience to this right. visiting tourist. So I think that there was a, a troubling conflation of um, who is ultimately being served who is this trip for? Is it for the children in Kenya or is it for the tourists? Right. And for you, after, you know, you've been investigating the Meet a We organization for quite some years now. And when the We operation finally shut down uh, in Canada in 2020 last year, how did you feel after seeing the result, the result, I suppose? like uh, take consequence upon the we organization um curious i felt i felt uh i felt skeptical and um what 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 people have to understand is that we charity said that they were closing in canada they didn't close in canada they said they were closing in canada and they said the kilberger brothers said that they would be stepping down from the organization. And neither of those things have happened yet. Um, and I think that there is a widespread misconception. Some people think that We Charity has closed completely. That's not true. Mm-hmm. What has happened is they have stopped doing, uh, or in the process of stopping doing their development work in seven of the eight countries in which they were active. You know, you were a member um, of the extracurricular club, so you know that they were active in Sierra Leone and, and India yeah. and Haiti. And Haiti, they say, oh, we, we, we have achieved everything that we've tried to do in Haiti, so we're pulling out. Um, I'm skeptical of that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm skeptical of the claim that it was this political scandal in Canada that caused this to happen. They had already fired hundreds of their employees before the political scandal. Right. Um, so we have found that there's reason to, to be very, uh, to question the messaging that we get from this organization. And then I, I obtained internal communications from Craig Kilberger where he's, he was telling Allstate, which was one of their, their actually it was their biggest corporate sponsor, yeah. 
yeah. that that he wanted to double down in the United States, um, that that we charity in fact wanted to move to the United States. So there's a process where they're they're doing less and less good works around the world than ever before, but they want to do more domestic work in America, where they have their corporate sponsors and where they have access to thousands of kids in schools. And this is they still consider this charity work when they do anti-bullying campaigns for kids in private schools. In in you know We Day itself is considered yeah. charity. Um, yeah. So there's really you know there's some really good questions to be asked about. Um, who ultimately is the beneficiary of, of this charity work. And do you think, like, why do you think that the Kilbergers brothers, they set out, I'm sure with good intentions, I hope. Um, why do you think it, it, it evolved into this business model? Do you think it's something to say about how business models and charity are inherently incompatible? Or do you think there is a balance that can provide uh, transparency inside a social enterprise? I think that's an excellent question. And um, I, I do think that they started off with good intentions. I, I don't really think otherwise. Um, so on the one hand, you have this story that's almost of like grand human themes of how the best intentions of children who want to make a better world can get warped over the years. And then you have, I think, a more specific story about this very particular approach they took, which was they felt, and I, I guess they still feel, that charity is limited, that charity is inhibited, that the, the rules around charity are limiting, and that what charity really needs is a profit motive, and that businesses uh, and the business ethic and the entrepreneurial Silicon Valley tech business ethic um, and the entrepreneurial ethic, that, sh that is going to be the engine of, of charity. And they also feel on the flip side that um, businesses uh, businesses need to absorb the practices of charity. And, and we found videotapes of um, Craig and Mark Kilberger telling major companies, if your employees, especially millennials, can be convinced that your company, it might be an insurance company, if they can be convinced that their company has a purpose, they will accept big pay cuts. Yeah, so they were trying to blend, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. You're blending charity with, with companies and companies with charity. And to your question, are these things inherently incompatible? Well, I think that uh, the, the, the corporate side wins is basically what happens. I don't know if they're incompatible, but if you allow business into philanthropy, my opinion is that ultimately your charity will become a business. And if you allow charity into your business the other way around, I don't think your business will become a charity. I think your business right. will it might use some of the language of charities or it might have some of the optics or the clothing of charities and say, we're, at, we're not, you know, tech mining. We're not, uh, we don't want you to think of us as Dow Chemical, the chemical company. We want you to think of us as the heartwarming company that gives grants or that helps people or helps children overcome illness, but you're still actually a mining company. You're still actually a chemical company. You haven't yeah. become a charity. Yeah. And, and then the thing that was really interesting that I noted was, on the White Saviors podcast, underneath each episode, you actually include a response from we about the subject of every episode. I was wondering why and what was the rationale behind this decision? Because, you know, I listen to a lot of these investigative podcasts and not all of them choose to include a response from the criticized. So what was the intention behind that? 
Well, as journalists, we do have an obligation to uh, give the people who were, you know, investigating um, a, a chance and space to respond. We want that out of fairness, but we also want that for our listener. Like, I think that people want to know, well, what do they have to say mm -hmm. about this? And sometimes we learn, sometimes they actually give us answers that we learn something from and that are, you know, informative and we want to give people as much information as possible. The thing about the WE organization is, um, when we ask them for questions, they don't always answer the questions that we ask. Sometimes they give us answers that turn out to be false. Like when the WE organization told Canadians that they had never paid the Trudeau family any money, that was just not true. Right. Um, but when they do answer questions, sometimes they answer in a way that makes it very difficult to include their full response. They might give us a hundred pages in response to a one sentence question. Mm -hmm. And we have editorial conversations about how much of their answer is actually relevant. And then when it comes time to make a podcast, it's just technically not feasible to read a hundred pages of response. Yeah. But, you know, the internet is great. It's not like a newspaper where you've got limited space. A podcast has limited space, but in the show notes, we can include, you know what? We're not trying to hide anything from our audience. So if you want to go dig, dig deep, if you want to hear everything that the WE organization has to say, here's their full response. Right. And for you as a reporter during the process, how did you um, help employees, former employees of WE, um, overcome like the fear of, you know, speaking with you? Well, you know, and this is me and my colleagues, because Jaron Kerr was a reporter here who did a, a ton of the investigative work on the WE organization. And, mm -hmm. and there are others here who have done this as well. And we all had to deal with sources who I think had pretty legitimate reasons to be worried yeah. about whistleblowers. They, they had signed very prohibitive contracts, non-disclosure, yeah, non-disparagement exactly. agreements. And also they just were culturally, they had been a part of the WE culture, which is... Um, very immersive and many of them likened it to a cult yeah. and they felt social pressures like they still had friends who worked there and, and they didn't want to be seen as betraying uh, we charity so um, I, I don't think that we saw it as our role to um, convince them necessarily that they would be fine and there was no danger because some of them have good reasons to be you know what, what we what we could promise them was if they wanted to be confidential we would protect their identities and we did that. And um, some of them said, I'm willing to go on the record, but I want to be careful because, you know, I can talk about certain things, but other things I might have more legal liability for. So we would work with them to make sure that they were comfortable with the statements. Um, and then of course we would take their statements and make sure they were true. We would go and get um, supporting statements. We would ask independently other people for their accounts. We would ask the WE organization for their version. And then we would try to get, you know, we had a lot of success getting in the, in the you know, we've been at this for years investigating yeah. WE. And yeah. sometimes somebody would tell you that they were up to some kind of financial, um, you know, dealings that sounded very, very dubious. And you wouldn't know for sure. We actually got our hands on bank records that confirmed some of these reports. So we were able to mm -hmm. actually like, find documentary evidence that was substantiating some of the accounts we got. Oh, wow. Yeah. And at any point uh, during the process, you said you spent many years investigating we. Um, have you ever felt any sympathy or empathy towards the Kilgsberger brothers? Yeah, um, I think you can't help but it, it, it's a good practice to try to remember that these are human beings that you're investigating. And also, without even trying to you spend so much time reading things they've written or watching videos of them speaking or talking to people they've met. 
I feel uh, that Craig Kilberger is not dissimilar to like a child actor. He has yeah. been incredibly public. He has been working. It's funny that his crusade was one against child labor because he was a child laborer. You know, he had a full-time career from the time that he was 12 years old. He had cameras on him all the time. Yeah. He had people um, who were, you know, the people he was around were often his employees more than anyone else. And I, I you know, my, my personal feeling in, in telling the story is, wow, here's the guy who never really had a chance to be a teenager the way that I did or the way that most people did. You know, people were watching him. They expected him to be uh, uh, kind of like a grown up. He was interacting with the Clintons, the Queen of England, the Pope, the Dalai Lama, you know, it, it, incredibly high pressure atmosphere. Um, and then, you know, the family dynamic as, as his brother Mark got involved and brought this like really aggressive business ethic to the charity. Um, you know, you do wonder about the personal dynamics and, you know, they involved their, their you'll, you'll, you'll find that their spouses are part of the we messaging, their children were used in we photos and we messaging. You, you wonder like, what did they leave for themselves privately? And, and, and it doesn't seem like there was much. Yeah, and I just like for me as someone who used to be so involved with the Me to We, you know, extracurricular club, and a lot, lots of my friends were also really disappointed to learn about the scandal because um, a lot of us actually looked up to you know the Kierberger's brothers as a role model. Um, how should we like? How, I don't know. As a, a reporter, what's your advice for young people who just move on from that? And like, what do you think? is the balance between like um, looking up to someone who works in charity, but also not idolizing them to, a, to the extent where it's cultish and it's, you know. I, I, you know, I, I'd love to talk with you about your experience in that club. Um, but I think, that, I think that what I've come to appreciate is that, you know, they call it the cult of personality. Mm -hmm. I know this as a storyteller, as a journalist that like, people want to relate to things through stories and people want to relate to specific individuals. Yeah. Everybody can agree that child slavery is terrible and needs to be um, abolished. Um, why did we need to, to experience that through this personal story of this, you know, they told the story of Craig Kilberger again and again and again and built him up as an idol again and again and again. And his story was kind of like repurposing the story of Iqbal Masih um, and somehow putting it through the optics of a kid like yeah. Craig made it more relatable, I think, to white kids in North America. And I think that yeah. when you look at the way that that story got reshaped and retold, um, you can kind of, uh, you know, maybe blame or, or, or put responsibility on Craig Kilberger. But I also think that you have to ask, well, why was that story so effective? Why did people, you know, uh, need this, like, it's almost like a superhero origin myth of how Craig Kilberger became the change maker uh, icon and how everybody in that organization revered him um, was, you know, it's a part of that, you know, intoxicating, um, charismatic leader culture. Uh, and when you see that that was something that so many kids, like, I don't think that young kids necessarily have the defenses to ask the right questions yeah. about um, very powerful, and they used very slick, you know, emotional manipulations, the videos, the music, the stories, and then they would tell you, you can change the world, you can be just like Craig. And 
they're appealing to something that is really good in kids. You know, when, when kids get to be, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old and start to see that there are problems in the world, they want to fix them. You know, my kids, when, when, when they see a person on the street, they say, let's give them money. You know, like kids are, they don't have that shield that adults build. They just want to help. And I think that's a wonderful thing about, about children. And the fact that that got, in my opinion, manipulated. Um, and, and it's simply a fact that the Kilberger family became multimillionaires after getting into the nonprofit business. You know, this was a family of middle-class means. The parents were school teachers mm. and there's a number of different, you know, enterprises that they were involved in, but chiefly the family business or the family pursuit was nonprofit, nonprofits and, and charity, but it was very lucrative. And so, you know, I, I think, I think that schools need to think about the access that was given to, you know, kids like yourself through these extracurricular clubs, because when there's a club in your school, you think it must be good or they wouldn't let them into the school. Yeah, I think another part of the disappointment for me was not only, you know, this uh, the Kilberger's brothers, but also this idea that the most successful charity in Canada was successful because of some very immoral reasons. And it just, it begs the question, is there any hope for successful charities to have transparency and to still um, have donation, large amounts of donations without, you know, getting themselves into business models and profit, profitable, um, you know, operations? Well, I mean, it's interesting because we was much more concerned with its optics than, you know, they put a lot more effort into their storytelling and their optics they are not the biggest charity or even one of the biggest charities in Canada, you know, depends when you, how you define it. But in terms of the amount of money that they raise every year or the amount of impact, there are far bigger charities in Canada, but they always position themselves as like the biggest, the brightest, the boldest. Yeah. In terms of PR, yeah. it's definitely the biggest. Yeah. So that, that's one, that's one response I have, but the other is, um, you know, I do think that this was a unique charity that, that had some very strange atypical um, activities. That being said, I keep hearing from other charities and people who used to work at them saying, you know, the problems you're talking about, lots of charities have similar problems and yeah. lots of charities um, need to be investigated the way that you've investigated We Charity. I'm not against charity, um, but, uh, and I'm not a scholar of charities. I'm a journalist who is looking into a story but one thing that I have come to think about through investigating this um, and talking to academics like Feroz Manji is um, the theory of charity itself and the idea of what charities are there to do. When you talk about Kenya, you know, we will tell you, we charity will tell you, we built a hospital in Kenya and, mm -hmm. you know, we're providing these and they, they, they are involved in this Baraka hospital. But one thing that they did was um, in their videos, there's a sign outside of Baraka Hospital that, that tells you that Baraka Hospital is funded by the Kenyan government. The people of Kenya fund that hospital. It's Kenyan and, and they're doing that for themselves. Now they do that with the assistance of We Charity. In the We Charity video, they erased that, yeah. that notice. They don't want the world to know that the government of Kenya is capable of providing services. Like in Canada, we don't have other countries providing us our healthcare. We do that for ourselves. 
right. it's very disempowering this idea that basic services like you know immunizations or hospitals or education Kenyans can't do that for themselves and what we found was that the we organization literally was erasing um, evidence that Kenyans were able to provide part of that for themselves and replacing it with their own branding so you know is charity good it can be but I also became aware of the ways in which charity can harm and and the ways in which you know some people call the non-profiteering business yeah. can actually disenfranchise and disempower people yeah for sure um I think that's all the questions I have for today and I don't want to take up too much of your very precious time um, do you have anything you'd like to add about the White Saviors podcast or the We Charity? I, I just want to thank you for your interest. And, and um, I just, uh, I hope everybody listens to the show. It's it's a fascinating, jaw-dropping story. And um, I've listened to the three episodes that's been out. It is absolutely super fascinating. Oh, I'm glad you, I'm glad you thought so. I, I, I think everybody should hear this. And, and I, I'm just really mm-hmm. glad you've taken an interest in it. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you so much again for your time. I really appreciate it. Red Cap Records is an amazing artist-owned and operated record store. Shop from their diverse online music collection and get free shipping within Vancouver and the Lower Mainland with the purchase of two or more LPs. If you would like to further support them through the evolving COVID-19 crisis, you can do so by buying a gift card to use at a later date. Visit www.redcat.ca for more information. Hey, are you interested in radio? Passionate about gender issues? Want to be an active part of your community? Then join the wave and become part of CITR's Gender Empowerment Collective. We meet every Friday at 2 p.m. and we want your voice. We are all about empowering everyone and giving you the chance to speak your mind. No experience necessary. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, or email us at genderempowerment at citr.ca. Hello, we're back. Hi, this is The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM with me as your host, Saida Unju. Hello, I hope you enjoyed that interview. So no... Guess what? We have another interview for you. This time, this interview is with Toff Marshall. He is the artistic director of the United Players of Vancouver. He is also a professor at UBC. So if you're a student who does classical studies or arts one, you might have Toff Marshall as your prof. And he is actually the director of the play that is uh, being put on by the United Players of Vancouver at the Jericho Arts Center starting September 10th. So this is a the perfect time to, to give this interview a listen, learn what Amphitro is all about. Amphitro is the name of the play, by the way. I should have mentioned that. Um, I'm seeing it myself on the 10th. And I, I, hope, uh, I hope you enjoy this interview. Yeah. Goodbye until yeah I'll be back after the interview and then yeah okay enjoy before we get into our interview with Toff Marshall I do want to mention that there are mentions of rape and slavery in this interview because of the nature of this play that we're talking about so if you think that those might be triggering for you please skip this interview it's around 15 minutes and we'll be right back with 
topics that are not related to those. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Today, I'm here with Toff Marshall, who is the artistic director of United Players of Vancouver and who is also directing and have translated the play Amphitro. Hi, Toff. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So could you start by telling us what this story is about and what people can expect from this play? Sure. Well, the play is from um, about 190 BC, and mm -hmm. it's uh, been translated from Latin. It is a mythological story, and mm -hmm. it's set at the night that Hercules gets born. Um, so uh, we don't see baby Hercules, but he appears over the course of the play. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a really interesting story. We know that uh, Jupiter, or Zeus in the Greek myths, uh, has multiple affairs with human women, often disguised, but uniquely this is the only time he disguises himself as a human being. So in the play... Uh, we've got a double. We've got Jupiter, who appears as Amphitero, mm -hmm. uh, because he wants to sleep with Alcumena, uh, the wife of Amphitero. Mm -hmm. um, the god Mercury, Mercurius, uh, disguises himself as uh, Amphitero's slave. And so we've got two doubles. So it's sort of like comedy of errors. And in fact, the fa the pair of twins, uh, both master and servant, that we see in Shakespeare's Comedy of Errors, was here 1,700 years earlier. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's a, it is a Comedy of Errors. There's a lot of confusion because everyone who is speaking to anyone never knows uh, who it is that they're talking to. They all think they're talking to Amphitro mm -hmm. and Socia, the slave, but half the time it's a god getting them into more trouble. Oh, wow. <laughs> Sounds very interesting. Yeah. And so this is now your first time directing a play, um, but is this your first time translating uh, one? I've translated plays before, um, mm -hmm. never for... Uh, Never Roman comedy, and and not recently. Um, mm -hmm. I've directed at United Players a number of times, mm -hmm. um, but this is my first play since uh, becoming artistic director. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do a playwright that I care a lot about. I like ancient comedy, but I also mm -hmm. know that it's very problematic. And yeah. We can talk about ways in which it's problematic, mm -hmm. but... Um, but recognizing that, I think that uh, a play like Amphitro is a really important play in the history of theater, but it's one that doesn't get staged. And so I'd like to give it the opportunity. Uh, United Players is a amateur company here mm -hmm. in Vancouver, down at Jericho Beach. And so we have the opportunity to put on, um, uh, I'll say, less commercially driven yeah. plays. We're not looking to make a profit. We're looking to put on great and interesting theater. Mm -hmm. And did you translate Amphitra for this specific production? or did I you... did. Oh, yeah. okay. No, so uh, I... I looked around, once I decided I wanted to do Amphitro, I looked around for a good translation that was already around in English, um, and while there are some that are in print, none of them uh, had the sense of fun that mm -hmm. I think is uh, deeply ingrained in the play. So uh, it's translated into a rhythmic verse that uh, I find drives the play and gives it a momentum mm -hmm. um, and doesn't bog the actors down 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's really geared towards action, but everything that gets sung or said uh, has a correspondence in the Latin one way or another. Okay, so you said sung or said, which br- perfectly brings me into my <laughs> next question. Uh, I read that this piece features songs um, written by yourself and Alex Silverman, and I was wondering what the reasoning behind wanting to include these musical elements was. Well, because Plotus himself used musical elements. Mm-hmm. Um, the ancient sources talk about his numeri innumeri, his countless different measures, and that included sung measures. And mm-hmm. so there are five sung portions over the course of the play. They correspond to bits that the ancient Roman actors would have sung. Mm-hmm. And uh, rather than uh, well, I, I wanted to go to a professional, and so uh, I've worked with Alex Silverman before on mm-hmm. other projects. Um, he is a composer uh, based in the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. and uh, he's also very funny. <laughs> and so uh, I think uh, so. So he wrote the music, and together we worked on the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we've got songs that uh, reflect the spirit of the. Uh, ancient play as well as I could want them to be. Mm-hmm. Okay, and how long did it did this whole process take, like from the translation to the music to where it is right now? Well, the theater uh, allowed me, approved uh, my, this play as part of the season back in December last year. Oh, okay. And I began translating it, I guess, the last week of April. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's sort of been my summer project since uh, semester got out uh, at the end of last year. And so uh, most of May was spent translating. Mm-hmm. And working with Alex through late May and into June, um, we're now uh, working on some final uh, adjustments to the score. But uh, the play's been in rehearsal for several weeks now. We mm-hmm. cast it at the end of June, and we've been rehearsing for July and August. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And what so- I did on my summer vacation. Yeah. Also, I feel like it w- was probably like a perfect way to spend time at home because we needed to. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Uh, the time I spent doing the translation, I'm going to say, uh, usually uh, was late at night after everyone else in my house had gone to bed. <laughs> um, but. Uh, perfectly silent. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I usually work at night, too, so I understand very well. <laughs> <laughs> So I just wanted to take it back to kind of the beginning of our conversation where you talked about kind of how um, old Roman uh, plays can be problematic. And did you kind of want to touch on that? Do you think it has any problematic parts? (laughs) Yeah, no, even though it's a mythological play, uh, you know, it's a play that deals with sexual assault. Mm -hmm. Alcumina um, is sleeping with somebody uh, who she isn't intending to sleep with. Um, and so what Jupiter does could properly be termed rape. Mm-hmm. Um, rape is an element of real life. It is an element that motivated a lot of plots, and we don't always find them funny. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that we call the genre comedy uh, is problematic in that respect. And this is one of the things that I uh, teach about as well, thinking mm-hmm. about um, the role of women 
in these plays and uh, the role of sex work in these plays. Um, Alcumina thinks of herself as a faithful wife, and as far as she's concerned, she is. It's only the intervention of the gods that's changed that. Um, so uh, I wanted to touch on that. Mm-hmm. The play recognizes the controversial aspects of it. Um, it's not something that went unknown by the Roman playwrights and the Roman actors and presumably the Roman audiences as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, the play even uh, marks out the ways in which there are tragic elements to the story. Um, this is the play that gives us the term tragic comedy. Uh, this was the first tragic comedy, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and but but there are dark aspects to the story, and I'm not shying away from that. It's not just broad farce. There are elements of farce, but Alcumina's situation is is really quite an ugly one, and uh, I think that the play acknowledges that. Um, the play also acknowledges problems with slavery. Uh, mm-hmm. The the fact that the enslaved people within the play um, and many of the actors themselves were enslaved in all likelihood. Um, but the enslaved characters recognize the fact that physical abuse is part of their ordinary life. Mm-hmm. And uh, being whipped and being beaten uh, was a factor of slavery. And while they might make light of it, it's not a, a detail that's ignored by the play. Mm-hmm. Um, this is being performed for real Romans. And I felt that it was important to uh, recognize that aspect, um, those darker aspects that I think are present in the play mm-hmm. in, as part of a production. It does mean that there, you know, it isn't nonstop laughs, but I think there are good laughs to be had mm-hmm. and there's good fun to be had. But it also, I think, encourages us to think about uh, issues of consent, issues of uh, power dynamics, and these are things that I think are very much on the minds of, well, they should be on the minds of all of us. There we are. Yes, very true. Thank you. And um, you mentioned that you already teach uh, about this kind of stuff. So I, I did, yeah. No, I'm yeah. a professor at UBC in my day job, exactly. and so uh, I often teach Greek and Roman theater, uh, and often comedy. Do you think that your um, job as a UBC professor and being a director and artistic director, so being involved with theater, do they uh, kind of interact uh, with each other, or do they enrich each other, or do you kind of just keep them different? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they they everything of my life bleeds into each other i'm afraid <laughs> and so i uh certainly um i'm going to be teaching amphitro this year uh, oh. and giving the students copies of the script so that they don't need to pay for the textbook <laughs> i think that you know that that is the least that i can do yeah. but it also gives them a chance to see a roman comedy that they otherwise wouldn't have the opportunity to do i um I, I, I think that my research and my teaching are improved because mm-hmm. I'm also a theater practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't say that my theater practice is necessarily improved <laughs> yeah. uh, by being a professor, but I can say that many of the things that I choose to emphasize in my theater practice and mm-hmm. the questions that I want to ask as a director and also as an artistic director are shaped by things that I have learned from my students. Mm -hmm. They're shaped by questions that I've been asked that I've not been able to answer intuitively. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And so I want to, it it, it is an opportunity for research. And certainly, um, I I love working with actors, but the Mm -hmm. opportunity uh, and the challenge of having to make sure that people who aren't invested in the ancient world care about every line, understand every line, uh, have an interpretation of every line that they can then pass on is so valuable in terms of making me understand how the ancient play is working. Mm-hmm. That's very true. Well, thank you so much. Um, so would you like to remind everyone when and where they can watch Amphitro? Absolutely. Um, as you know, <laughs> uh, what's being allowed and whether live theater will even exist in two weeks mm-hmm. is constantly changing. But here is what we know. Um, we at United Players are intending to offer live theater in a reduced capacity house. So you can have spacing and stay uh, in your groups and be six feet away. Mm-hmm. Uh, United Players operates out of the Jericho Art Center, which is down at Jericho Beach. It's right next to the hostel there. Um, and Thursday through Sunday, there are going to be shows from October. Uh, from September 10th to October, I better get the date right, October 5th. <laughs> Is that a Sunday? Um, for four weeks from October 10th. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, though, we're going to be making the play available online. So it's going to be possible to view a recording of the play. It's not being directed for film. Um, but we are going to film one of the previews and make that available for people who aren't yet comfortable going back mm-hmm. to the theater. And uh, we hope that that will also allow people um, to uh, have the choice to see the show in an environment that they are most comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love live theater, and I want to go back um, to uh, live experience, but it has to be done safely, and it has to be done with confidence. Exactly. If people are worried, it's 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 not fun, and it's not what theater's about. Um, so, uh, as I say, as long as the province allows it, we will have live theater, uh, and it's safe to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, throughout... Uh, the run. It'll also be possible uh, to see the play online. Um, There's a price for uh, getting online tickets and also a bubble price if you want to watch it with more uh, people. Mm -hmm. Um, But everything and all the information can be found at unitedplayers.com. All one word, unitedplayers.com. And our particular play is unitedplayers.com stroke Amphitro, A-M-P-H-I-T-R-U-O. But there's also a link from the main page. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to talk to me. It was uh, great getting to um, learn more about Amphitro, and I'm really excited to see it for myself. Well, thank you so much. It was a treat talking to you. Take care. Thank you. Hello, I'm back. I know it's 6.07 and we're over our time slot. Well, time, a, a lot of time. But the thing is, we're not done. We have a really quick review that Jade did. This is like five minutes and like it's actually quick. So we're just going to play that and then I'll be back. I'll say goodbye and then we'll, we'll be off. <laughs> Enjoy. Hello, lovely people. It's Jay here with another skating review. Um, This week I visited Access Gallery's um, temporary exhibit, which ran from July 24th to September 18th, titled Conditional Belonging. 
curator uh, Rebecca Wong brought together some great artists. Um, we were talking about Taryn Goodwin, Maria Margareta, Action Art Earwig, Sydney Francis Pickering, Nina Robertson, and Tedafumi Temura. What does it mean to make art with limited access and capacity? These artists tell their stories of alternative ways of being, knowing, and making outside of the parameters set by the hegemonic ideologies that center power and privilege. These boundaries between arts and craft, traditional and contemporary art, and established norms and lived experiences are blurred. um, They act as catalysts for art making where underrepresented voices find space within and beyond the dominant cultural structure. Conditional belonging often refers to how the minorities or new members of a community have to conceal or refrain their true attributes and conform to set standards in order to fit in. This exhibition exposes the harm and struggle induced by this liminal state, celebrates the resilience and resourcefulness of those who champion their own nuanced perspective. This exhibit really explored um, access to space for those who are marginalized as a result of you know, their identities and the power afforded to them by institution. Um, I saw a lot of artists reimagining normality as though it centered their own worldview and um, their own communities. And this exhibit also highlighted Indigenous First Nations um, and immigrant artists alike um, because they're really exploring the relationship with this specific geographic location. Especially... um, there were some heavy themes of, you know, colonialism, um, and trying to also disrupt what that worldview is, and inserting um, a new sense of reality into already familiar images. So, you know, again, some of the main themes were colonization, exploitation, lack of human connection, displacement, and exclusion. Um, we also see some artists focus on indigenous identity. Um, the houselessness crisis, diasporic identity, disability justice. Um, We're kind of exploring how it feels like to exist at odds with a majority and creating a world where you actually fit in. So some of the highlights of the exhibit for me, there was some beading um, in both Pickering and Maria Magreta's work. Um, They both, you know, seem to be using beading to disrupt, you know, a normalized narrative and kind of insert themselves into this landscape that was produced as a result of a history of colonization. Um, It really transports you into a different world and another space where everyday items take on new meanings. Um, Tadafumi uses photography to play with light and shadow to enhance the innate quality of inanimate objects. Nina Robertson's photography also explores the commingling of nature and humans to the point of merging like a human form with a form of a tree. And although the two uh, objects kind of are juxtaposed, they're still very, you know, intertwined, I would say, from what I saw. Um, I also saw Taryn Goodwin's um, work, which was mainly text-based, and um, it felt like an exchange or like a back and forth between institution and the individual who seeks access to it. And as a result, um, 
the artist is redefining the rules of engagement that comes with actually in dealing with said institution. Um, and Art Action Earwig, um, they did a puppet, um, shadow puppet show. Um, and in this, you know, shadow puppet show, they really highlighted a lot of current issues, um, mostly related to social justice. Um, one of the main themes reflected on what it's like to live in a um, tent city or in a community of people who live in tents. Um, and also, you know, how human connection is deteriorating over time. I mean, it felt like all of the all of the um, work there, you know, I felt it was really in context of, you know, what are, whatever stage of capitalism we're in, where, you know, labor is exploited and there's also a lot of inequality. I mean, that kind of has been what the world has been like for most, you know, marginalized communities. Um, but we're seeing labor exploited and there's a lot of inequality and not as much um, connection between people. Um, but it's nice that this art kind of transports you to a place where you feel like you can almost understand and appreciate the perspectives and lived experiences and worldviews of these artists. Hello! Welcome back. It's... 6 13 p.m and we're done <laughs> thank you so much for listening today i hope you enjoyed today's show it was a lot i'm aware but we just want to cover everything that's happening in vancouver and bc so yeah this has been the art support on citr 101.9 fm with your host saida unju and i'll talk to you next week but for now i'll leave you off with some music have a lovely day. Feel it's there, a party.